Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to our new podcast, Octopulse, taking the pulse of the Red Wings rebuild under general manager Steve Eiserman. I'm Mark Faulkner, assistant sports editor at the Detroit News, and I'm joined by Ted Colfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. We're live from Little Caesars Arena. The Red Wings getting ready for their home debut. Ted, the music is playing. You were in Nashville last night. The Wings are back. They're just on the ice. What are some of your impressions of that 5-3 victory against the Predators last night? Well, first off, it's nice to be back here, isn't it? Sure I mean, is. It's a great atmosphere here. Not a big crowd yet here tonight, <laughs> but I'm sure they're filing in. Um, let's face it, Mark, it was an yeah. impressive evening. I mean, the top line was excellent. Uh, they took advantage of every Nashville error, it seemed like. Jimmy Howard was very good in net. And again, the, that top line, the Dylan Larkin line, I mean, they dominated. Nashville had no answers. Luke Lindenin, another unsung yeah. hero last night. Had a very big game, both offensively and defensively. And uh, that much maligned defense did a nice shot. I thought Mike Green played a good game last night. So it was, hey, there's at least we know they're not going to lose them all. <laughs> they're not going to lose them all. So what were they saying after the game, Ted? What, what stood out? you. Jeff Blaschel talked about Glenn Denning working on his shot and he roofed that game-winning goal. That seemed to be one thing that happened after No, the game. you know what? What they were happy about most of all, the fact that they competed hard. And then every time Nashville did come back, Nashville tied the game up twice, the Wings were came right back and answered. So that was pretty impressive effort all the way around. Uh, we saw that at times last year, obviously not enough times. But for one evening, yeah. they looked like a good hockey team. How about the uh, the big line? What what do you make of the Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Mantha last night? You mentioned it briefly, but it couldn't have gone any better for the three of them. No, they right? were outstanding. Nashville had no answer for their speed. They really didn't. Uh, I thought Mantha had a couple of fantastic plays during the course of the evening. Bertuzzi with his usual grit and skill plays. Larkin was Larkin. Who knows if they can play like that consistently during the course of the year, but from what we've seen so sure. far, I mean, they are, they give the Wings a really nice cornerstone there atop the lineup. Hey, Ted, I talked to a scout last year about Anthony Mantha. Going back to the 2013 draft, Mantha was at number 20, and this scout had a chance to take Mantha, and he said no. He didn't want Mantha. He thought he was too inconsistent, a potential bust. Skip ahead to last night. I posted a photo after your story was posted, an Instagram photo of Mantha, which was really revealing. He was driving to the net. His stick was under the chin of Matt Duchesne. There was no stopping him. He's 6'5", 215. And I think if he plays that way, Dylan Larkin said in your, uh, in your story about Mantha moving his feet, well, I think he'll check a lot of the boxes when Steve Eiserman talks about skill, competitiveness, being driven and intelligent. He's got a lot of those attributes, doesn't he? He could be a really impactful player. I mean, he's a I mean, there's not many 6 foot 5, 225 pound power forwards in this league anymore and he he definitely can fill that role. Um, Maybe he's gotten it. Maybe he's gotten to the point in his career where he's matured. He understands what it takes. I mean, there were a lot of bad 
don't want to say bad, but there were a lot of learning lessons there. I mean, you kind of wondered sometimes whether the inconsistency was just going to dog him throughout his career, whether he had the passion, whether he wanted to be great. I mean, it seems like he's turned the corner maybe since last year. And let's face it, it's a big year for him. If he puts up big numbers, I think he's a guy, when you look at the other contracts around the league, he's definitely in that seven, eight, nine million dollar neighborhood a year if he puts in a 30 to 40 goal season. And I think he's kind of motivated by that too, frankly. Let's face it, any of us probably would. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year to watch, but I think he could be one of those types of players this year who could really be a breakthrough player. I wonder what Steve Eisenman is thinking. This podcast is about the rebuild, and Dylan Larkin makes the most money on the team at six point one million. Who knows where? Who knows where Mantha's going to wind up and slot in? Well, it's an interesting dilemma. You have Mantha, Bertuzzi, and Athanasiu all up as restricted free agents. Uh, I don't know. You wonder. Would they dangle one of those? I would imagine maybe Athanasiu would be a piece maybe they could dangle to get something else. But the other two, I would think, you know, they're going to they put up that type, a type of year like they did the way they played last night. Yeah. They're going to break the bank. You know, for our listeners, this is the first of our weekly podcast, 27 straight weeks. The next podcast is Saturday night. When the Leafs are in town Saturday night, and we will be featuring on that podcast a player the Red Wings would love to have. His name is Quentin Byfield. He's one of the top players in the 2020 draft. The Central Scouting list comes out Monday tomorrow. Quentin is 6'4, 215 with the Sudbury Wolves, the top 16 year old junior in Canada last year, the leading scorer in the OHL list uh, this year. And he's been compared to three-time Stanley Cup champion Jenny Malkin of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So that's long-term. You're right, Ted. That's, yeah, that's, that's, down, that's the down the road. But certainly if the Wings were to miss the playoffs and get into the lottery, Quinton Byfield may be somebody that they'll be looking at. And tonight we have an interview with Nick Flitstrom. He was at Barnes & Noble today in Northville. And... The lineups, Ted, were unbelievable, as you might expect. I talked to one woman there, Sue Beattie from Livonia. She was there, and Nick was signing her book and just asking her questions. Sue has a niece who started the game, played hockey, wore number five, was the captain of the uh, Little Caesars under-18 team, and then Sue's niece became the captain of the team at Connecticut. Uh, college so just what we've come to expect dealing with Nick Lidstrom over his 20-year career Chris Draper and Chris Osgood called him the perfect human of course much in jest but I, yeah. I don't think he'd be I never liked that, that designation to be no. honest. I never did I, I just for some reason it always bugged me but yeah obviously he's one of the best players I've ever covered I mean my goodness probably the best defenseman I've ever seen and just the way he compo composed himself on and off the ice. He was such a professional. He really was. I never saw him lose his cool on the ice or off the ice. Um, every plotted, every credit that he goes his way, he deserves. And looking forward, Ted, before the Saturday podcast, the Wings are back here on Tuesday against the Ducks, and then you're in Montreal with the Canadians. 
what do you expect for these these early games at least? How important are they to the Wings? Oh, they want to get out to a good start. Last year, let's face it, they just dug themselves such a hole. I mean, nobody expected playoffs, obviously. It's similar to this year, but they, they had dug themselves such a hole last year, one, eight, and two. I mean, they had no hope, really, to come back from. Um, so they're, you know, they, they want to get up to a decent start, at least keep stay alive in the standings. Anaheim Tuesday night, I mean, they're going through a rebuilding process themselves. Uh, no more Corey Perry, no more Ryan Kessler. But they have some talented young forwards, so they're similar to the Wings. Montreal's been a house of horrors for them in recent years, so it'll just be interesting to see how they do in that type of setting. And then Saturday against Toronto, I mean, let's face it, I think Toronto's one of the best teams in the league, so that'll be a very stiff test on Saturday night. You have the Leafs going to the final. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're an excellent team. Absolutely, against Vegas, and Vegas no. winning. All right, coming up next, four-time Stanley Cup champion, Nick Lidstrom. Yes, our special guest is former Red Wings defenseman Nicholas Lidstrom, a four-time Stanley Cup champion, seven-time Norris Trophy winner, 12-time All-Star, World and Olympic gold medalist, Conn Smythe Trophy winner, Hockey Hall of Fame member, first European-trained captain of a Stanley Cup championship team. The long introduction, Nick, it kind of reminds me of that introduction, Tiger Woods and uh, Phil Mickelson. Tiger had won up in Grand Blanc. He won the uh, Buick Open. The starters said, and now Tiger Woods, winner of the U.S. Open, the Masters, and he went on and on. And you might remember this. Phil said, all right, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I do remember that, yeah. Going back, like two quick stories before you came over. One, we just talked to Doug McLean, who said in the middle of the night over in Sweden, uh, Brian Murray called him and said, I just saw the future of our team. And he said, he's as good as uh, Al McGinnis. And Doug said, I think you need to go back to bed. <laughs> That's the quick one. And the other one was, before you came over, Nick, I met a Detroit journalist with a Swedish connection, Ben Erickson, and Ben's 80 now. And maybe you could tell me a bit about what it was like coming early, and well, there was at least one journalist who knew a bit about Nick Lidstrom. Yeah, you know, Ben was, was very helpful, uh, especially my first year, you know, being a fellow Sweden. He he covered some of the NHL for a, a Swedish newspaper yeah. back home. But it was good to have someone that uh, that spoke the language, and, uh, you know, that can, that can help me out a little bit from just being, you know, being new uh, in the city. Now, we're here at Barnes & Noble in Northville. There's a long lineup outside. Uh, you're here to sign your book, uh, Pursuit of Perfection. And then tonight you're going to Little Caesars. We'll be there for the Dallas Stars opener and our podcast tonight with Ted Colfin. Um, 20 home openers for you, Nick. Um, 20 home openers. One of them was in Sweden. Um, Greg Innes, the statistician last night, looked up your record for those 20 games. So you went 19 games without a goal. It wasn't until your last year did you score a goal in the home openers. That would have been 2011, 2012. You had one goal, 11 assists, plus 11 in the home openers. Um, what are home openers like? Like the, the team did relatively well because it was a strong team. What do you remember about home openers in general? Uh, just the excitement of, yeah. of the regular These season starting. Uh, you go through training camp, you play exhibition games, but you're waiting for that the game that or the games that really matter. So the yeah. first one, uh, especially at home, is very special. 
you know, they introduced the teams, uh, some of the new guys, and it's it's an ex- excitement in the building and and it, exciting for the team too that they're you know the regular season finally is starting. And four of those home openers were unique in that they were banner raising um, home openers. So let's start with uh, '97. You may not remember exactly what it was like, but after breaking that 42-year playoff drought. What do you recall, if anything, Nick, maybe about that championship year, but maybe specifically about opening night and raising the banner? Uh, the same thing, excitement, because yeah. the Stanley Cup is back in the building again. You had the oh. chance to to uh, uh, have the Stanley Cup uh, in attendance. Uh, you know, you see the, the Stanley Cup banner going up in, in the rafters. Yeah. So it's very exciting. And uh, you're right, I rem- don't remember all the details in all of them, but some of them I remember... Uh, Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay was out on the ice along with Steve Eisenman when, when the cup was, was brought out onto the ice. So some exciting times, uh, especially after winning, uh, winning the Cups. And the 1998 one, uh, do you recall, was, uh, was Konstantinov, was Vladimir on the ice? Or was there any, do you remember, was he there at the time for this? I can't recall that uh, yeah. uh, after or the first game uh, in the regular season that season. But I would imagine that Vladimir would have been part of it somehow. Uh, whether coming out uh, in a wheelchair or some some sort being part of the uh, celebration. Just a quick comment on Konstantinov. A lot of us really maybe even forget just how good he was, second in voting at one point for the Norris Trophy. Uh, tell us a bit about Konstantinov. Yeah, he, he was a tough player to yeah. play against. Uh, we came in uh, the same year in 91. We were both rookies and both paired up with some older defensemen and, and myself, Brad McCrimmon, and he had Brad Marsh. So... But Vladi was, was a tough guy to play against. Uh, he played as, as tough as he could against the, the opponent's best player, whether it would be Wayne Gretzky or, or their toughest player like yeah. a Tony Twist or a fighter. So he didn't care who you were because he, he played as hard against ev- anybody, and that really showed uh, what kind of player he was. Nick, those uh, back-to-back championships, we had uh, Mickey Redmond in the studio talking to Ted Colfin, and here's what Mickey had to say was the difference between those back-to-back championship teams and the ones that just fell short. When those guys understood that Maltby and Draper and McCarty were just as important as they were, and those guys, the Maltby, Drapers, and McCartys understood that they were expected as important as the superstars, that team came together. Hmm. And boom, you got a championship. So, Nick, there's Mickey talking about... uh the forwards, the underrated, the difference makers. How about some of the defensemen we don't hear about as much? Murphy, Fatisov, Rouse. You talked about some of your partners, McCrimmon, Ward, Erickson. Mm-hmm. Were they sort of the Maltby, Draper, McCarty's as well? They were. I think uh, those guys, the D, the D men that you mentioned, were just as important as, as the, the grind line or the third and fourth line players uh, and because they had experience. They had experience of playing uh, in, in playoff uh tough playoff runs, uh, playing against uh, top players in the world. So those guys were key as well. And and listening to this clip from about Mickey Redmond, he, uh, I think he hit it you know, straight on on, so. on the nail there with, with uh, how important they were too. Because they could, you could play uh, Draper, McCarty, uh, Maltby against the opponent's top lines. And the other team couldn't, sometimes couldn't play their fourth line against our top line. Right. So we had an advantage oh. there. We had some four strong lines that give us, that gave us some, uh, different dimension too from our star players to a grind line that that were tough to play against and you know nick it was interesting hearing mickey say not only um not only was it important for the you know the, the stars to know that they had them but that those players knew they were important as well because sometimes ice time isn't always relegated the same way you're not sure of your role but it sounds like mickey said the those players and the defensemen probably had to realize i'm 
really valuable and there might be a dynamic there that we don't understand as even in the in in you know in the media or as fans yeah and i think that's where a team or a group come together when the, everyone realizes that my role is important too it might be 10 minutes of ice time compared to 20 or 25 minutes but but my time is important as well and that could be uh, Draper, uh, Maltby killing penalties, being out there blocking shots and playing strong defensively that, that we needed as well. So they were a big part of our success. The two other banner raisings, uh, 2002, there's nine Hall of Famers. Datsuk is coming as well. How strong of a team was that? And do you remember much at all about the banner raising too with those uh, teams? I remember the excitement of, of uh, when the season started. We felt like we had an all-star team. And you know, later on it turned out that we had nine uh, Hall of Famers on there. But yeah. uh, uh, that banner race was, was very special too, because we we uh, reached our goal when uh, you know when you play uh, you're supposed to win and you finally come through and you do you know you do win which was was a great feeling. 2008, Nick, uh, 11 Europeans. You were the captain. Game six at Mellon Arena in Pittsburgh. So maybe you can tell me a bit about what that was like too. Um, back home again, you were the captain, and could Europeans, well, of course, with the Russian five, it was already disproved, but certainly it was almost like the the Swedish five as well, but there were 11 Europeans on that team. Yeah, and, and yeah. same thing. We had a group that really came together, and management didn't care where it came from. It was all about playing well as a group and coming together as a team, and we were able to do that, and it was... Uh, uh, I think some critics were looking at our team saying, oh, you have too many Europeans, you have too, too uh, many players playing the same style. But we adjusted to, to playing Mike Babcock hockey, and that's what, what won us the cup that year. In fact, that's a perfect segue. We'll hear from Mike Babcock now. And, you know, he came in in Steve Eisman's last year, Nick, 2006, and we'll hear from Mike a bit about the transition. I'll ask you right after the clip about some of the things you learned from Steve Eisman, but... Uh, Here's Mike Babcock. The best players that have been great for uh, for many, many years, the reason they've been so great is they believe they're that great, and they never want to give in. And it doesn't matter if your legs are gone. Now, Stevie pulled his groin three times that year. You know, that's part of being the lockout. That's part of the age of the player. It was hard for him, but he was a pro. He did it right every day. He dug in. He did what the team needed. He led by example, uh, and he was great with me. And, you know, I'm fortunate. I consider Stevie a friend of mine. I've worked with him a number of times. We've had good success together. Our story that we just ran talked about those 11 years when he was captain, when he didn't win, the longest-serving continuous captain without winning a championship. And then in Mike's rookie year, the way the two of them worked together, and you must have been... You might have had an inkling, maybe, of what was going to happen, who might be the next captain. Do you remember that 2006 year? I do remember that uh, that year. Uh, it was right after the lockout. We didn't play for a whole year, and we yeah. came back, and, and that was Stevie's uh, last year. But same thing, we came together as a team. Stevie was uh, an older player, but we came together as a, as a, as a team, and and Stevie was led by example, like, like Mike Babcock was talking about here. He led by example every day. He went to he went to work every day, and that's that I think made us other players, our younger players, and and some of the veteran players to to dig in and play as hard as he did. Now our last clip is with Steve Eisenman too. Now talking about the top uh, the type of team that he's trying to build, Nick, and some of the lessons he learned about resolve and accountability. Making hard decisions, like he's he he went down to Tampa, of course, and had uh, some success there. But here are some of his thoughts about the type of team 
that he would like to see. And at the end, I'm going to ask you, he, Steve mentions some of the attributes about skill and determination. I'll ask you which one you think might be the, the most important. You know, again, we're building and, you know, we've got a mix of veteran and young players. Uh, what I'm trying to do is put the, the most skilled the most competitive, the most driven, the most intelligent hockey players on the ice. We're trying to amass as many of those players as we can, regardless of their age or where they come from, and ultimately be a good team. So, Nick, uh, Steve mentioned skilled, competitiveness, the drive and intelligence. So all the players in the NHL, to some degree, the top 600 players in the world, they have those elements. Which ones you think might stand out more or more difficult to acquire skill, um, intelligence? It'd be ideal to have all those attributes, right? Yeah, I, I think that someone that can take you a long ways is smartness, being a smart player with along with your skills. And uh, Stephen mentioned the combination of, it, of everything. That's when you find a, a superstar that has the skill, determination, the, the competitiveness. If you add all, add all that together, that's when you find a, a super uh, superstar. Just one quick question about the uh, smartness aspect. In your book, Pursuit of Perfection, you talk about trying to analyze the analytics. Where did you move? When did you move? Certain moves around the ice. Uh, uh, reading the play properly, and some people are trying to analyze. And, and you talk about this in the book, that there's um, a group that actually is, has tried to figure out how to play the position better. Those weren't things that you probably thought of, but what are your thoughts about what they've tried to put together to help other players think the game better? Yeah, and I was very interested yeah. when I got approached by a, a couple of scientists in Sweden that were looking at uh, different sports, and hockey was one of them, and they, they looked at me club up close and see what I did in, in certain situations, whether it would be a two-on-one or something, uh, play out of a corner. But, uh, you know, it was very interesting to see them put analytics to to how I how I thought the, the game and how my, my think process in, in different situations. Finally, Nick, there's all kinds of information in the book, uh, co-authored by Bob Duff. I was his boss for 22 years, so I'm glad that everything worked out. He's a really a first-rate journalist. I'm glad that, you know, you guys were able to put this together for the fans who are waiting out there right now. Um a bit of a, a sidelight almost. There's no mention of the uh, the octopus, actually, in our podcast, Octopulse, Taking the Pulse of Steve Eisenman's, um, his rebuild. So um, the octopus with Al Sabatka twirling the octopus on the ice, uh, the purple uh, octopus coming down. Um, you have four young boys at the time. I'm sure some of them might have had a bit of a laugh about that, but tell me a bit about that history. There's history behind it, obviously. Yeah, the eight uh, victories. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I wasn't uh, aware of it when I first uh, came over here, but uh, soon enough, the uh, players were explaining to me some of the former players, like uh, Ted Lindsay, Gordy Howe, they came into the locker room, explained the, the tradition, and, and it turned out to be uh, like when you turn up the temperature in in, a, in an arena when. Al Sabatka would come in before a playoff game. Someone had tossed the octopus on the ice, and he's swirling it around uh, above his head, and it, it raised the, the the level of play somehow for the players because the fans got so excited about it. So it really helped us uh, in, in some of the games we played. And did you feel some of that excitement? The crowd really got into it, uh, into it so much that it, it helped us players as well. Nick, thanks for your uh, your time today. Best of luck with the book. You're always welcome on our podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Octopulse, Taking the Pulse of the Red Wings Rebuild with Steve Eiserman. 